Well, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you today. It is good to gather and worship both in person as well as those who are joining us online. For any I haven't met, my name is Bill Birch. I'm one of the pastors here. And we have now reached week five of our Route 66 journey through reading the New Testament together. Congratulations, you finished Hebrews this past week. Uh, You probably have discovered it's a little bit more dense theological book that sometimes the concepts are hard to understand, but you made it. And now we've started James, which is just filled with practical, down-to-earth advice about how to live holy lives. Now, if we lost you somewhere along the way or you never quite got started, this is a great time to jump into the reading plan. Read James 1 today, and tomorrow you will be caught up with the rest of us. Uh, The reading plan is available in a brochure out in the lobby. We can send it to your email. It pops right up on your electronic devices And it has already been a blessing to be able to read the New Testament together. As Reverend Sarah shared, today is the first Sunday of Lent in the Christian calendar. It began this past Ash Wednesday. And for the next 40 days, excluding Sundays, we are preparing for the events of Holy Week and eventually the celebration of Easter. Our Lenten worship series is simply entitled 316. And it is inspired by a book by Max Lucado. And we're going to be focusing on one verse of the Bible throughout Lent, John 3, 16. Lucado wrote, if you know nothing about the Bible, start here. If you know everything in the Bible, return here. Many of us have memorized the verse in a variety of different translations. I'm going to be using the New International Version over the next weeks. And the verse is appearing on the screen, and I would invite you to recite it with me. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Today, we're looking at the broader context of the gospel according to John and of John 3.16, and then next week, we'll look at each phrase of the verse. According to tradition, the fourth gospel was written by the apostle John, and you may remember he was a son of Zebedee, the brother of James, and along with Peter and Andrew, they were fishing partners on the Sea of Galilee. It was Jesus who gave James and John the nickname, the Sons of Thunder. This was not a meek, mild pair. And Peter, James, and John formed an inner circle within the disciples. And they were present in some of the most significant and intimate moments of Jesus' ministry. In John's gospel, there are often references to the disciple that Jesus loved most. And most scholars think John was referring to himself, that they had this very close friendship. And you may recall that at the cross, Jesus entrusted the care of his mother Mary into John's hands. John wrote in a language of Greek philosophy, very different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who tell parables that Jesus told. John focuses on these long discourses that Jesus makes, and there's unique material there found nowhere else. In John, we hear the story of Jesus changing water into wine at the wedding of Cana of Galilee. A little bit later in the sermon, we'll hear about the story of Nicodemus visiting him at night, the encounter of the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, of how he raised Lazarus 
from the dead, washed his disciples' feet at the Last Supper, and the encounter with doubting Thomas the week after Easter. John was probably written in the 90s A.D., 60 years after Jesus' death, probably the last gospel written, so that it is why it is fourth in the canonical order. And most likely it was written in Ephesus, which was in Asia Minor. And what tradition tells us is that John took Mary, they traveled to Ephesus, and that's where they lived. And out of the 12 apostles, John was the only one who did not die a violent death. And finally, why did John write? Well, we understand his purpose through the nickname he was given, the evangelist. John chapter 20 says, he wrote the gospel so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you might have life everlasting. So today our scripture lesson comes from John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, and then 16. And as you're able, I invite you to stand and honor the reading of the gospel. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Then in verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Amen. Would you please be seated? It's a curious scene in John chapter 3 because Nicodemus comes at night to visit Jesus. And you can make a case it was for privacy. It was away from the crowds that gathered around the Lord during the day. They could have an intimate conversation one-on-one. -on -one. But you also have to wonder if privacy was an excuse for secrecy. Jesus had already upset some of the religious leaders because he had gone into the temple and run out the money changers, causing quite a stir. And so perhaps Nicodemus was balancing curiosity with caution as he came to see Jesus in the darkness. Nicodemus is an intriguing character in John's gospel. We're told he was a Pharisee a member of a religious sect in Judaism that in many ways represented the very best of the faith. They called themselves the separate ones because they tried to separate themselves from the sin of this world and to follow the law in every aspect of living. John also tells us Nicodemus was a member of the Jewish high council that oversaw all of religious life. The 70-member group called the Sanhedrin was very powerful and prestigious. And Jesus himself called Nicodemus one of Israel's teachers. He was a rabbi entrusted with teaching the people how to be faithful to the Mosaic law. In turn, Nicodemus was impressed with Jesus. All these rumors of his teaching, preaching, healing, exorcisms, and miracles had reached Jerusalem's ears. And he greets him with the words, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who is sent from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God was not with him. That's a high compliment from a Pharisee, from a rabbi, from a member of the Sanhedrin. And notice the pronoun Nicodemus used, we. There was a group of them that were impressed by Jesus. And in social convention, you expect Jesus to say, 
thank you, or even repay the compliment. But instead, Jesus makes this abrupt, stark statement. He looked at Nicodemus and said, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. That phrase right there, I tell you the truth, is a telltale in John's gospel. Some translations say verily, verily, or truly, truly. It's a way to mark that what Jesus is about to say is of extreme importance. If you're in class, it's like a teacher saying, this is going to be on the test. Pay attention. Then the Lord goes on to say, you must be born again. And that same phrase can be translated as born from above. And both meanings are inherent in Jesus' words, that you must be born again, and the only way to be born again is to be born from above. And what we see in this encounter, and then throughout the Gospel of John, as well as the New Testament, is this wonderful invitation that in Christ, we can be new creations, where the old passes and the new comes. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, called this new birth a fresh start, a wonderful new beginning. It was the Jesus movement back in the 1960s that popularized a phrase that we use to this day, born again Christian. I've got to tell you that phrase has always confused me because it's repetitiously redundant. It's like saying wet water. You can't be a Christian without being born again. That's how you get into God's kingdom. And Jesus shared that with Nicodemus. And Nicodemus said, what? And then replied, how can a man be born when he is old? Surely he cannot enter his mother's womb a second time to be born. And probably his mother wouldn't be real keen on the idea as well. But this sort of exchange occurs over and again in John's gospel. Jesus speaks heavenly truths, and his audience hears with earthly ears. And this man who represents the, the, the height of Jewish faith, who is a rabbi, just doesn't get it. And Nicodemus is not alone. Nicodemus understood that something new must be done in his life. That's why he reached out to Jesus. He just didn't know what it was. And oftentimes we stand in Nicodemus' shoes. We understand the necessity of change. We just despair of the possibility of transformation and dismiss it as something too good to be true. So Jesus went on to say to Nicodemus, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and of the Spirit. In some ways, Nicodemus' mistake and misunderstanding, Jesus takes and builds upon it. No one is born except by water. That's both natural and spiritual. How does birth begin when we're born with the breaking of water as labor begins? How do we enter into the kingdom of God? Well, the church on the far side of the cross in the empty tomb heard Jesus talking about the waters of baptism and what they represent in our lives. Uh, Will Willimon says baptism means everything that water means. It means that we're refreshed, we're renewed, it's vital to life, it washes us clean. 
In baptismal imagery, we are put to death and we are raised to new life. That God's grace is active and brings fruition within us. And John Wesley talked about those three experiences or movements of grace, of preparing or prevenient grace, of saving or justifying grace, of perfecting or sanctifying grace, that we're constantly experiencing God's grace in our lives to do something new. And we're born by water and the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that gives us the power to be who God created us to be, not by self-will, not by determining to be better on our own, but by a power that is beyond our own. And then Jesus referenced a very obscure story, at least to us, out of Hebrew Scripture. And he said, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert... So the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. And the church says, huh? But Nicodemus would have understood immediately what Jesus was talking about. Centuries before, Moses had been sent by God to Egypt to lead the people of Israel out of bondage. And they got to the Red Sea and God parted the waters and they crossed safe and Pharaoh's army was destroyed. And the plan was that Israel would go from Egypt through the wilderness to the promised land. But that's not what happened because the people were disobedient and rebellious. And so they ended up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And early on in the journey, things came to a head when they began to grumble and complain, not only against Moses, but also against God. And it even got to the point where they said, we want to go back to Egypt. They want to go back to Egypt. Back to the land of slavery. Back to the land of hard labor. Back to the land where Pharaoh had ordered the murder of their newborn male children. And so, both as a consequence of their sin and in order to call them to repentance... God sent a large number of fiery serpents into the camp. I don't know about you. That would bring me back to God in a hurry. And the people, sure enough, began to repent of their sin. And then God gave Moses strange direction. He said, take an image of the snake, place it on a pole, and then hold it high above the camp. And whoever looks upon it will be saved. Well, on the far side of the crucifixion, the church understood the graphic imagery of what Jesus was talking about. That at the cross, the Son of Man was raised up, and all who look upon him, who call out for salvation, receive everlasting life. He is the one that God has done something new for each of us. And then come the words of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16 has been called the gospel in miniature. It's all there, distilled into one verse of what God has done for us, but also what we are called to do in response. Because Jesus follows up John 3.16 with these words, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, But to save the world through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already 
because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Salvation is a grace gift, but we have to receive it. And how we receive it is by faith, and even faith itself is a gift from God also. But we must appropriate it for our own. Not just one time in life, but over and over again in life, we're faced with these decisions. Are we going to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, or are we going to travel in our own way? And oftentimes we, we try to just stand on the borderline and not decide one way or the other. Harvey Cox has a famous quote where he said, not to decide is to decide. And if we don't say yes to God, we're saying no. Nicodemus appears two other times in John's gospel. A little bit later on, he appears before the Jewish high council and kind of, sort of, maybe a little bit, defends Jesus. But at the crucifixion, it was he along with one other who went and asked for Jesus' body in order to have it buried. And that's it. John tells us nothing else about Nicodemus beyond that point. In my own mind and heart, I would like to think that Nicodemus was among those who encountered the risen Lord on the far side of Easter. And that very initial encounter they had in the dead of night suddenly became illuminated within his life. And he understood what it meant to be born again and accepted that gift for himself. We can't know what Nicodemus did, but we can know how we respond whether it's for the first time or for the next time, our Lord comes to us today with this amazing invitation. Not only must you be born again, you can be born again. The old can pass away and the new can come. We can put the past behind us and look forward with hope of glory into the future. And the gift is given and we choose how to respond. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this moment of grace, a time of worship when we can come before you this day and to hear the words you spoke to Nicodemus and you speak to us in order to enter into God's kingdom, we must be born again. We must be born from above, but we also can be born again and can be born from above. And for some here today, this may be the first time that we have truly heard the gospel news and respond. And for others, it may be a long spiritual journey where we respond yet again and renew our commitment to follow you. Lord, enter our lives. Forgive us of our sin. Grant us an assurance of our salvation and the promise of eternal life. Work by water and the spirit within each of us to do something fresh and new this day so that in Christ we might be new creations. It's in our Savior's name we make our prayer. Amen.